Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. Deranged and mad criminal. <laughs> JT the gambler. <laughs> they call me the rambler, but you know, that's yeah. just that's just how things roll out here for me. Uh today we are on episode four point three. That is right. The third stop on the extended clip reunion tour. In timeline A, last week we were in nineteen twenty. So this week we are in 1921 to 1923, and we are talking about Fritz Lang's Dr. Mabusa, the Gambler. In Timeline B, last week we were in 2020, so now we're taking it back a little, and we're in 2019, 18, and 17, talking about S. Craig Zoller's Dragged Across Concrete. Wow, and you know what the theme of today's episode is? Tough on crime. We're tough on crime, you know what I mean? With Mabuse, you got him running around doing his shit, does like fucking upwards of 50 crimes in the movie, and then, you know, we're trying to stop it with Dragged. That's so, yeah, you know what? I never really thought about it that way, but that is, it, 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 really, ta- it really would take a couple of uh, hard-nosed, experienced cops like Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn dragged across concrete <laughs> to bring down a mastermind of hypno criminalism, uh, like, uh, Dr. Mabusa. Well, I think we're good. It's like good coming out at this point by the third, like third chapter here. We know that the history of cinema is explicitly pro cop. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, this is our first, I guess, uh, genre week with two crime movies, um, both movies, you know, you, you have a not so even handedly, uh, portrayed dichotomy of cop and criminal. Uh, both movies kind of play with that a little bit too, because, you know, technically you're, you're supposed to be on, you know, the side of what the guy, uh, Van Wank or whatever, Von Wanker, yeah. uh, yeah. Von Wanker in Dr. Mabusa, like trying to take down this guy, but of course nobody would be. Yeah. Uh, and then in dragged across concrete, it kind of inverts it a little as the movie starts and ends with Tori Kittles' character and kind of centers his arc, despite the fact that we spend much more time, of course, uh, on the stakeouts with Vince and Mel. Uh, so Dr. Mabusa the Gambler is a, first of all, it's the first of three Dr. Mabusa films by Fritz Lang, and uh, the third of which that we have now covered on Extended Clip. So we've talked about The Testament. We've talked about The Thousand Eyes. <laughs> It's time to talk about him as the gambler. So this is a four hour. I don't even want to call it like a sprawling epic or anything like that, because it is a fucking freight train in terms of plotting. It is the breeziest four hours and a half that you could possibly imagine. It is a, you know, it's a it's a crime drama procedural kind of thing. It's like it's a serialized crime drama. Uh, split into two parts. Each part has six acts or episodes, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and it's just, you know, 
laying at the top of his expressionistic work as a visual stylist. You know, of course, this is, you know, the heyday of German expressionism. And so these sets just look incredible. I was watching it with Malcolm and every five minutes I was like, that set looks fucking crazy, man. Like I just, there's certain things that I can't even tell. Like, is that real architecture or a miniature on a set? You know, uh, in Lang's use of, you know, lines and shapes through architecture and design is just like, put to such good use in this film as well as the way that he captures faces there's a lot of just like single shots on Mabusa making a big face or you know one of his lackeys uh making big faces and I think uh the the irises also really help with that and I don't know in terms of plot and style like this film is just it's a it's a treasure trove yeah and you know in regard to the sets uh he uses them in a way that I think is really intelligent I mean he does find ways to display the grandeur of them too, but like also kind of does it in a way that makes sense with, you know, the rest of the story and whatnot. You know, he's not, he's not showboating, but the detail and all that is there, but it's like, there'll be like, uh, uh, I think of the wall street scene towards the beginning. And, you know, we both remarked on this huge clock. Well, to be yeah. clear, it's not actually wall street in yeah. America. Is True. It? Yeah. It's in Germany. Well, German still, wall street on the floor of the stock exchange. <laughs> yes. Uh, der wall street or whatever. <laughs> yes, exactly. Der, der wall, wall street wiener. Yeah. I, can, I don't even know enough German to do German language jokes, but, uh, which is sad after all the, you know, there's pretty lengthy intertitles here. I should have learned something. Yeah, but, uh, exactly. Uh, but like that clock, you know, the, I think it does give it like its own single shot, but it's like very, very brief. And then you'll just see characters like kind of walking out of this doorway in front of it. And you only see like the clock kind of uh, in the corner of the frame, like it's the sun or something in a kid's drawing or something. And it's, uh, I mean, just there's so much stuff like that throughout this movie to you know, to keep you on its side. Yeah. I, uh, like it had been a few years since I had first watched this. I think probably maybe in high school was the first time I had done the first two, uh, Mabusa films. And yeah, I was just blown away. This is like probably my favorite one of the bunch and is just so like large and grand in scope with what you guys are saying about like a uh, set design there. Like one, like, I mean, and uh, like what Malcolm was saying, I think works like perfectly to like the point of the plot. And there's one set in particular where it's like Von Wenk is on that sort of like stakeout, like observing like that one guy who's like into uh Carosa. Um, and there is like one of the illicit gambling rooms. I think this might be after the question cocaine or cars is posed. <laughs> There's like a guy that comes out of like an elaborate, like sort of spinning gambling device yeah. that like they say can like go down for when the cops come. And it's just like elaborate spectacle like that. That's like very expensive and over the top, but you have like good old fashioned debauchery too. Like I didn't know they went this stupid hard in 1922 because there's like cocaine right out the gates. Um, in that, I think spinning like contraption, you see like a naked lady as well. Oh, and yeah. just like the, there's one scene um, where 
Mabusa and his co-conspirators are just like drunk on their a- drunk off their asses rather, just like all around in a circle, and everyone looks disheveled and just crazy as shit. And uh, yeah, no, this is a, a wild ride. That's another thing that kind of yeah took me by surprise is kind of you know a lot of it takes place in gambling halls, and you know there's references to drugs like you said the first line of the movie is Mabuse cursing out you know one of his assistants for you know stop with the cocaine which is like I don't know maybe maybe you want to he seems kind of like a low energy guy you might want him I want to keep him on <laughs> it <laughs> keep him on it but uh I mean back then they weren't cutting it with other stuff you know it's true. like more traditional more you know yeah it's it was more of a traditional thing back then not exactly you know. but like people really uh you know stigmatize yeah. cocaine use <laughs> <laughs> and all you know all the cocaine users in this movie they're all you know savory oh wait no they work for the evil dr mabusa uh, no it, but the i just like that's an aspect i enjoy about this movie that mm. um i think kind of breaks the stereotype of like older movies because you know you think of older movies they're not gonna go to certain places or whatever but really kind of before you know and i know this isn't hollywood but like kind of like the first decade of silence you know until kind of uh um you know the mid-30s kind of comes in you know there's more censorship in these yeah movies. of course i mean yeah. the pre-code talkies of course are a big example of that it's like uh yeah. people see those they're like holy shit old-timey movies were so dirty it's like yeah Check out some of the silent ones. Even those are yeah. pretty nar- Some of those are pretty nasty too. Um, so anyway, also to speak on what JT was talking about, that mechanism for a secret gambling hall where you know this guy comes out of the ground and it looks like this carnival tent game kind of thing with the the doohickey spinning around him, where the game is just like you send coins up and you might get them back down or something yeah. like that. Uh, but yeah, it's the ultimate, like when the cops are coming, you flip his switch and the whole room changes kind of gag. But I remarked to Malcolm while we were watching it, like this is the twenties. This whole operation is being done by like five dudes pulling a bunch of ropes. Like they're just pulling like hundreds, if not thousands of pounds of set design on ropes, like on a whim. And I just think that like, the audaciousness of the design of this movie uh, really matches like Mabusa's mindset. I think like he's really one step ahead of you in every, uh, every regard. Like you think this set is cool. Just wait until there's a radical change to it during the scene. You know? Yeah. I mean, you really like with this movie, you really could just go set to set and that's, yeah. that's a way to tackle it. I mean, I mean that stock floor yeah. when Mabusa is there in costume after the opening set piece where they, uh, steal a contract, uh, in order to shake up the market for Mabusa to exploit, uh, which is done amazingly where the, the contract is tossed out the train window over a bridge into a car, like just crazy action right away. Uh, but then, yeah, you have, I guess it's Mabusa in costume on a desk on the stock floor, just watching everything go into chaos and everyone melt down and he's just swagging out, sitting on the desk. Like, it's awesome. Yeah, it is. It is like, a, I feel like this, you know, it, it's a long movie. So there's, you know, some certain acts are a little bit more talkative than others. But the mm-hmm. way this this movie starts out, you know, it's just the style 
is so you know exact and impressive and like like you said the way he'll like give a character an iris you know or take it back you know something like that and just like kind of like the you, like you know the cards are on the table right from the beginning you kind of get this smooth criminal operation and then kind of like this this huge set piece of the Durworm German Wall Street you know yeah. where you got like a hundred dudes and hats and stuff like that and it's just <laughs> all these greasy hats yeah yeah they look greased up like they they put lotion on them but it's i i think it's just uh i think lang's kind of getting at like kind of that smooth criminal attitude that's you know more common and mm-hmm. uh you know movies to come but it's but like, they're also sloppy and getting fucked up every night which is awesome true true well yeah exactly that's the the debauchery is still i mean there's enough time for everything in this movie I also love the very first shot is Mabusa holding a, a like a pile of photographs as if they're a deck of cards. And then the photographs of like his lackeys who he exploits throughout the movie, you know, and later on that really comes back to haunt him when he's going crazy and he sees kind of the ghosts or specters or whatever of his former crewmates uh, while he's like locked in that cellar with the blind guys going crazy at the end. Uh, I also wanted to note part one is called The Great Gambler, A Portrait of Our Time. Part two, Inferno, The People of Our Time. So if part one is about The Great Gambler, that infer, like you infer from that that the person of the German times during the Weimar Republic right now is Dr. Mabusa. You know, and then all the other people are all the people he exploits in Act Two, basically, because uh, Act One he's just pulling, getting all the strings ready to be pulled. You know, all right, uh, or Part One rather. I got a dumb guy question. Maybe, sure, maybe you two smart fellas could elaborate. But you know, Mabusa using the power of persuasion. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? All these people in his life are being persuaded. You know what I mean? Does, I, I know, do you think it's like kind of prophetic of what was to come, you know, kind of like the German public is so susceptible or is that, is that just kind of like a, in hindsight type vision? Is that kind of just something I could uh, say as someone who's, you know, that's history to me that didn't happen. <laughs> um, I mean, I think just from like little bit of reading that I had done on like production angles to it. I think Lang was certainly going in with that perspective. And I think like even like in the second Mabusa film, I think he's definitely going for like kind of the Hitler like Nazi thing. Um, I would say like this, I I feel it like to some extent, like especially just like the level of like vicious and just sort of like angry control he has over people. Yeah, and I, I like uh I like how Mabusa, you know, many times he elaborates that like I'm not just doing this for the cheap thrills, for the tricks, you know what I mean? Because I do this because people's purpose in life is to be fooled and to be you know, and to gamble with men's lives, you know what I mean? I he really it is like a it's an I- ideologically uh inspired uh, trickery. Yeah, I mean, I in mean, terms of that reading of it, I mean, the best I could say is, you know, hindsight's always six million, six million. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So act two, uh, after act one, you know, consists of his market spiking, you know, going black hat mode. Uh, act two, then, you know, we go down to the Follies. We go see a fucking raunchy show. Uh, you got babes, you got dudes gawking at them. It's pretty awesome. Uh 
that's where uh, Mabusa is now disguised as Mr. Balling, uh, which is like the coolest <laughs> name for a gambler to ever have, obviously. I think, yeah. you know, uh, we credit people like Bob Dylan as being the original rappers. And I think, uh, you know, um, Dr. Mabusa may have originated the slang of balling as in doing well financially. I think I, I have to say this again, but I remember in high school, my English teacher was pushing that Bob Dylan was the original rapper. That's so sick. And then made us write a... Just because he liked Bob Dylan so much, we read The Great Gatsby, and he's like, compare how, like great the Gat, compare Gatsby to Dylan, and like compare and contrast. And it's like, I, don't, Crazy. I don't even know if that's really applicable, but that is a wild assignment. <laughs> You've been through all of F. Scott Fitzgerald's books. You're very well read. It's well known. So yeah, he uh, goes to this secret poker hall. You know, he sets his eyes on Hole, his new target, and he uses hypnotism to just take him to the fucking cleaners. And it's a uh, it's a pretty awesome scene. Uh, then Act Four introduces Van Wank, uh, the the detective, and um, yeah, there's a lot of cool like visual introduction to him with a lot of dissolves and stuff like that. And uh, again, like you you brought it up at the beginning where it's like Van Wank is uh, he's the good guy he's doing whatever but like you're in it for mabusa just like going ape shit crazy yeah um like he he's the sexy appealing character i mean not literally sexy of course i mean to each their own but like i think he's a um, stud <laughs> when they first like i think he's ready I, to go <laughs> I, I i think that's my think... i think we share phenotypes i think we kind of look alike so <laughs> Talk carefully. Uh, I I don't think it's in Act Three, but I think it's in Act Four uh, when Van Wank and Mabusa finally meet, where Mabusa's in like the crazy old man sort of get up there, <laughs> and I love that like the formal technique there is just like phenomenal, where it like zones in on like his face and just like does I, I don't know it he's able to express the feeling of like falling under this hypnosis by like sort of like cutting off like parts of the frame where you just see like that little sliver of Van Wank there. Also like you get the camera like pushing into Mabusa and then even like pushing in with the intertitle cards. There's a lot that like just, I I don't know is again, like technique is incredibly impressive. Yeah. The stylized intertitles are awesome. Um, so yeah, you know, Mabusa freaks out when he finds out that Detective Van Wank is on the trail, so he poisons him. Uh, they meet at the, the back room bar at, uh, Palace Andalusia. Hey, Andalusia, isn't that a, uh, John Cale song? Uh, <laughs> anyways, oh, I didn't know that. So that, know. it's from Paris 1919. Thank oh, you very I'll much. check it out. Uh, so what was I going to say? Yeah. So that location, that's where the question is posed. You know, so he, he, he gives the password to get into the back room, but then after he gets the password, the guy asks him, well, are you here for cocaine or cards? <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, I'll take the latter. Thank you very much. I'm a gambler, not a freaking nose doper. Yeah. <laughs> I love, uh, you know, JT, you're talking about the Mabuse's hypnosis too. I mean, the, the stylistic stuff that, uh, I was gonna call Fritz Lang Mabusa, but uh, no. Hey, they're, they're kind of in the same wheelhouse yeah. right here. You know, they're both the masters. Exactly, but like, uh, you know, Lang brings so much style to those scenes. But kind of just like, I love that. Like, all he has to do is just kind of like 
stare at these people kind of like weirdly and they become hypnotized because it's like, I don't know. There's kind of like a, like a, like a nothingness terror to that. You know what I mean? It's like, this guy's, is this guy looking weird at me? Is this guy? (laughs) I mean, he's a creep that knows psychoanalysis. That's his, his gateway into the human mind. I mean, yeah. I mean, it is, uh, you know, that's skipping ahead in the movie a little bit, but I mean, Mabuse even uses that, you know what I mean? He kind of has his traditional hypnosis techniques, but then he just straight up uh, therapizes a man to death. You know what I mean? With uh, <laughs> bad, bad suggestions and uh, telling him to cut out from the cut off contact from the outside world. Yeah. I mean, this movie is a you know staunch warning against the evils of therapists. Yeah. Extended clip on the reunion tour has become a anti-therapy podcast, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> We don't so need anyone it, clouding up your mind. Yeah, if BetterHelp wants to, you know, get sponsorship <laughs> on this show, they can go take a fucking hike. BetterHelp, well, about no help because that's what we got. <laughs> so I don't, I don't want you getting help either. <laughs> Whatever happened to rubbing a little dirt on your knees, brushing off your shoulder, and going on with your day? <laughs> uh, so, oh. oh, go ahead, JT. No, I just said this is sort of an aside question, but. I was curious if you guys, like, what you listened to. Like, did Eddie force you to listen to John Cale or The Velvet Underground (laughs) during your watch of this? Because for the first, uh, like, portion of the movie, I did, um, like, just the score that was with it. And then, like, at the second, like, part, I was like, oh, shit, wait a minute. I can put on my own music here. And I switched it up and I did... Leonard Cohen's uh, songs of love and hate and that like worked out really well with it it's like has that like perfect like kind of somber like gets a little intense at points like it matched pretty perfectly yeah I could see Avalanche kind of going well with some of Mabuse's antics that's a Avalanche kind of a scary song towards the end yeah just a just a random thought I have but that that song's kind of horrifying (laughs) when he's talking about things uh, but we 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 just uh, what is, is it the Kino Blu-ray? Yeah, is that the, uh, the Kino Fritz Lang silent box set uh, Blu-ray. Whatever scores on there, we watched, and it was serviceable. It was like not too distracting, other than certain like xylophone riffs <laughs> that were a little stupid. It is very xylophone heavy. I mean, even yeah, uh, were they big xylo heads back in <laughs> fucking Weimar Republic? That 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 <laughs> seems almost like German somehow. Like, oh yeah, Maybe. I love to play the xylophone but uh i love playing xylophone <laughs> i mean even when uh what do you call it when mabusa busts out his chinese glasses and does a little bit of goes jerry lewis mode. yeah yeah goes sign <laughs> fu mode even the the xylophone in the score hit a little bit of like a uh, racist like oh dun, yeah dun, 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 dun. not yeah. quite that but like quote unquote oriental riff yeah but it is like it's it's so <laughs> slight that it's almost tasteful but it's you know Almost it's, tasteful. It's, it's not. It's, Almost it's, tasteful. It's not, but it's like that's as tasteful as that could be done. <laughs> uh, so as we said, yeah, Van Wank is poisoned, and he's just like left floating alone on a kayak, which is pretty sick. Um, but you know, as it keeps ramping up, Mabusa gets more paranoid. Uh, Carosa, Caraza, she gets arrested. Who's kind of like the main lady by Mabusa's side, um, and you know, he's uh, he's starting to really go off. He's he even says, what does he say? Uh, 
expressionism is an idle game and so is everything else or something like that <laughs> like he's just like there's no love there's only the will to power like uh that's that's pretty hardcore stuff you know yeah uh it definitely does pre- predate the uh certain uh you know fella who would uh roam those streets a mere decade and a half later or so mm-hmm um, but part two, Inferno, the people of our time. I do like how it goes TV recap mode for a little bit. Yeah. It's like previously on Mabusa. <laughs> See non <food. laughs> Remember that? When he busted out the Chinese glasses? Remember? Because <laughs> part two was released about a month later uh, after part one. Uh, now they're combined as one film, as they should be. But I, I do like the idea of seeing part one and then rolling out for part two a mere month later. Kind of a... Uh, Kind of uh, predating X and Pearl. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I mean, because it ends, part one ends with uh, Mabusa kidnapping a countess. Yeah. That's told. like a pretty, like, that's a great cliffhanger. And then he's like, she is mine. And then it's like <laughs> end of act one. Yeah. So he, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That was hardcore. He replaced Carosa with a with a new bitch. He, he decided to upgrade. <laughs> I also just, I love how much this installment of the Mabusa series is about wearing funny costumes and wigs and makeup and stuff like he is he is definitely turtle enough to get into the turtle club if you know what I mean (laughs) he is a master of disguise that that is a fun aspect that's like kind of not even like it's there but it's like it's not his main trick either you know what I mean that's just something he does diabolical fucking he could do everything with hypnosis true he just likes to dress up yeah exactly exactly some some great wigs he kind of had like a shaggy almost rocker look in one of them you know what i mean it's yeah. uh we love good looks <laughs> we love style and fashion so um yeah i mean the uh there's eventually the uh van wank mabusa meetup like right before i think act five or act 11 total uh they're kind of like de niro pacino heat scene you know where they're just kind of espousing both of their ideas uh, as it pertains to the story and mabusa you know he can't help himself he's just going to be a little trickster in that moment because he knows he can um but eventually things do not go so well and it kind of becomes like a uh a siege in the finale. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, Van Wink calls the fucking troops on Mabusa and his crew and it, it just becomes a crazy siege shootout kind of thing. Uh, very chaotic, very violent. And it ends up with Mabusa with these blind guys who had, we, we had met before who I guess they're blind guys whose job it is to count money. That's sick. No That's wonder sick. they had fucking economic problems in Weimar Germany. <laughs> were they were they counterfeiters or like I wasn't sure like what exactly. I have I'm no not idea. Sure if I they they were up to no good. That's what I yeah. said. They were sorting and counting something, whether it was real or fake. It looked like banknotes, but <laughs> but yeah, as I said earlier, like basically the ghosts of his former crew, like the people who were just with him 15 minutes ago uh, because of how crazy he's going. They're all there. They're all dressed in black too. Uh, and it's just like fading in and out and laying, playing with dissolves and hard cuts that kind of make them disappear. And uh, Mabuse is just like rolling in all the money and he's just, he's just going ape shit. It's the best way to end it. Just, you know, yeah, take then, him away boys. Yeah. He goes crazy and, the one of his henchmen rats on him. He's like, he's with the blind guys. Yeah. Uh, but it is like, that makes me want to speak to all the superimposing that's in this movie, because that's another thing that Lang kills. I mean, we didn't even uh, mention 
the famous Sandor Weltman. Oh uh, yeah. Which oh yeah. It is kind of funny that like that that heat scene you were talking about where it's just Von Wink and uh, Mabuse talking. You know, it's kind of the whole thing is like. Boost is like, you know, I think it's Sander Weltman. And then Von Wick's like, who's Sander Weltman? And it's, it's like, I'll show you. I'll show you. Yeah, and of course it's like a, a fake uh, kind of like magician slash hip. I don't yeah, know. Just an excuse for Mabusa to hypnotize him. He yeah. fucking gets up there as Sandor and gets Van Wank to be like the audience participant. True. And just fucks with him. It's, it's really incredible and evil because... He has the whole audience on his side, like, yeah, he's gonna go out of here right now and go to bed like a good boy, you know. Yeah. But he's really supposed to like go drive his car into the ocean. <laughs> but Weltman, uh, aka Mabusa, that that his kind of intro to the show, where the stage kind of becomes like a, a, a an entryway to the beach, and we oh have my God, people yeah. walking through it, and it's like this is this is just kind of a flourish, just to be a flourish, just laying, just showing off visual prowess and you know the uh pushing film technology at the time like it's it's a you know he uses this little magic show to do a little magic himself yeah no that's like a straight surrealist set piece almost the way that these people are walking seemingly from the desert into the theater you know it's that might be the greatest visual feat of the whole movie Mm -hmm. uh jt any any final thoughts on this one before we wrap it up give it a uh, a bullet rating um yeah i don't know this is a flat-out masterpiece i love this movie so much i feel like it it just sets up so much to come with the crime genre and i feel like many films are indebted to the great uh dr mabusa um yeah i don't know just like the amount of visual trickery here is insane like just the playing with like being an image maker and like having treachery and deceit involved in that i don't know all that much about uh lang as a person i think i've heard somewhere that he was a pretty like abusive kind of a prick but just like knowing his like expressionist like work and just like the elaborate uh, production value that went into this, like Metropolis, like other works, you do sort of. And I mean, like with we like talked about it a little bit beforehand, but like the like he knows that Mabusa is why you're there. He knows that like <laughs> that's the that's the energy of the film, and like y- him falling apart there like in the midst of like this crazy like spectacle certainly feels like it's apt to compare it like Mabusa to Lang himself. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to go five bullets on this one. Uh, I'm going to go five bullets. This, I think it also enriched my appreciation of the thousand eyes of Dr. Mabusa, you know, just going from the start to finish with Lang um, I, I just think that it really, to see how he made that character grow with the times where he's, he almost becomes like a specter of surveillance by the time the thousand eyes comes around. And in this one, he's just like a guy hypnotizing people, you know, yeah. and it, it's what it takes from the individual to someone who controls full systems by the time the last one rolls around uh, versus in this one, this like super villain uh, individualist. So 
yeah, I don't know. I think this is just a flat out masterpiece. I can't get it. Can't get enough Mabusa. I got the Mabusa mindset. Yeah, no five <laughs> five bullets for me as well. Like it is. It. it, it I think I, I. You know, funny enough, I'm more familiar with Lang's kind of like Hollywood work mm-hmm. than kind of like maybe some of his more heralded films like this one in Metropolis or whatever, where it seems like there was a lot of um, set work, just a lot, lot, you know, a lot of uh, elaborate design where it's like kind of like his Hollywood movies are a little bit more simple and straightforward. So it's like uh, to see the side of Lang is like, Oh wow. He really can do it all. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? He, he really, and like at, at the time, you know what I mean? This had to be, I mean, it looks so, you know, expensive. It looks, you know, the set pieces. We didn't even mention the told household, which is just filled with art and art and art. That house set is just like the greatest showcase for what art was at that time period. You know, because all of the art is fucking demented, but it is so beautiful. And it just makes the set come alive in such a haunted way. Yeah. And, you know, this is Mabusa also demented and beautiful you know and and uh uh yeah very impressed by lang uh mabusa all of them this yeah this was an instant classic for me shout out to mabusa and them we'll be right back on extended clip this video is brought to you by mubi a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe get one month free at mubi.com slash cinema tyler in early 1933 fritz lang the visionary director behind metropolis and m decided to troll the Nazis hard. And we're back on extended clip. It's everybody's favorite segment, Malcolm in the Middle. Life is unfair. And life is very unfair when you're moving through time simultaneously forwards and backwards, isn't it? Oh, I mean, it's 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 hard to even make what life is when time's being stretched like this. So as we've mentioned before, uh, Malcolm in the Middle this season will comprise of our gap years. Yeah, I really want to just take a gap year and kind of figure (laughs) things out, you know? Uh, So for this episode, we will be covering 1921, 23, 2017, and 2018. For those are our years for the episode not included by our main movie. You could figure it out. If you're a listener of this podcast, I don't need to explain to you how Malcolm in the Middle is going to work with our dual chronology forward backwards timeline. You're you're like me if you listen to this show and it just already makes sense in your head. Yeah, do the math. Yeah. So, let's start with timeline A. Uh I believe that starts with JT 1921. What do you got? Uh I have The Goat. Uh which the title would lead you to believe that this would be a movie by uh, Charlie Chaplin, but it is not. Uh, it's Buster Keaton, and I think the other credited director here is uh, Mel St. Clair, uh, which is just dumb name. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> Didn't help at all. <laughs> um, Glad he's yeah. dead. <laughs> um, no, The Goat is a solid, like, uh, Buster short, like, I had a lot of fun with it. He gets confused. Like, the main plot is that there is a criminal, Deadshot Dan, uh, who is, like, uh, like bu- who busts out of prison and through some wacky series of events, like, uh, Buster is just, like, through, like, the window bars 
of like the jail cell, just sort of peeping in, seeing what's going on. And they accidentally take a picture of him, and uh, he gets confused uh, for Deadshot Dan. And I don't know. There's no really strong takeaways for me other than like there are a lot of uh, really solid gags. There's one in particular um, that I thought was like very inventive uh, where he narrows the frame like where it's like it's one of the opening gags. Keaton is like standing um, like a bread line and you see him like he's he's standing behind like another store with two mannequins that are not moving and you see it in sort of like a wider frame and he's just like blacked out the tops and the bottom of it which is like like again like neat to see how you're trying to like work around some of the limitations of like shooting like everything in just like 43 at the time but i don't know i like and again, I don't think it needs to be a competition between Keaton and Chaplin for me. But I personally um, was more of a Keaton kid when I was growing up, and now through the pod, I feel like I I'm left being like, "Where's the heart, buddy?" Like Buster, <laughs> like obviously is like a great stone faced comedian, and I got a lot of laughs out of this. Um, but it really left me longing for uh, Chaplin's, uh, I don't know, sentimentality. Um, but no, it, I don't want to downplay this movie as like not good because I had a fun time. And there are a lot of really great gags and great stunts. Uh, great time. It sounds like this movie cemented to you that Chaplin won Keaton too. You know I, I mean, mean? It, I mean, it did. But yeah. like, that's not that's not the point. Uh, no, of like, course. Uh, yeah. Well, what about a potential number three, Harold Lloyd, for our 1923 film of the week, Safety Last? <laughs> There's an exclamation point in the title. <laughs> that's, you know, I usually would go safety first, but I guess that's what... See, that's the thing. This Harold Lloyd, he he looks the the world a little askew, you know? Uh, he kind of presents things a little off, if you will. Um, yeah, so Harold Lloyd, the great silent comedian, of course, this is kind of his touchstone film. Uh, you know, it's the one where he's hanging off the clock in the poster, and you really don't need to know much else more than the poster to know what happens in the movie. It's just like, it's really just this perfect, tight little object where, you know, you open on him with his sweetie. Uh, actually, it opens on a very funny gag where it looks like he is about to get executed in prison. Like there's all these <laughs> loops and he's behind bars. And then the camera kind of pans out and a guy adjusts those loops that looked like nooses. And they're really just like things to hold on to for a train. And he's at a train station. And that that's a pretty good sight gag. You know, the movie doesn't really have sight gags like that afterwards. It's kind of a weird intro. But regardless... Um, he heads off to the big city to make good for his sweetie uh, so that she can come out and live in the big city with him. And he's kind of gassing himself up in his letters. He's like, yeah, I'm kind of the boss, I'm kind of the man. <laughs> and of course, he's just a little worm at the office, you know. Uh, but he's a worm that you care about. And you got some great set pieces with him and his roommate being poor, you know. But eventually, it comes to where... You get the the classic romantic comedy staple that we've talked about since episode one, probably. The entire genre of films about uh, romantic couples where someone's pretending to be someone else and the comedy that that brings. And uh, 
this film's all about that. You know, his sweetie comes into town and he has to pretend he's the boss for a little bit. He's just bossing people around who are like, what the fuck, dude? You're, you're, you're my bitch. You can't do that. Uh, and it's really funny. And he eventually uh, comes up with a scheme to get rich when he overhears the bosses, uh, you know, talking about need for the promo. So he's like, I'll get you some fucking promo. My friend that I live with knows how to scale walls. So... <laughs> Get everyone here. He's going to climb to the top of the tower. His friend then gets chased around by the cops and has to, and uh, Harold Lloyd has to do it himself. And it's him getting very scared, reaching the top of his tower where his sweetie is awaiting him for, with a kiss. And it's like the most simple kind of third act possible. And it really takes up almost half the movie. Um, and it's one of those things where it's just like you know exactly what's going to happen. But the pleasure is derived in how and all the little detours along the way and the funny gags. And uh, I think the very, very ending of it is just one of the great grace notes where it's like, oh, the movie's over. He's about to see the girl. Oh, my God. He's flying through the air. Uh, (laughs) And then he, you know, kisses her at the end, looking terrified like he's shitting his pants. And it's uh, it's one of the funniest kind of rom-com endings you could get. Harold Lloyd, safety last. (laughs) Well, keep keep the romantic mood alive, mm-hmm. you know, romance and whatnot. Uh, I chose a little movie for 2017, fast-forwarding ahead in time, B timeline, etc. We are on timeline B. <laughs> Adjust your dials accordingly. Uh, song to song. Now, I think out of Malick's kind of filmography, maybe this might be the most controversial movie, possibly. I, I don't know. To the Wonder was True. a little more hated, but this one... I would say this one was even more divisive because some people really did ride for it too. Yeah. 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 And uh, I'm in the category. I love this movie. You know, I maybe not, you know, all the way five stars, give it everything, but just, just the kind of like the visual style that Malik had in night of cups he has here in song to song. And just on that alone, I'm with it. I love kind of like the, this uh, kind of memory based kind of, uh, you know, frenetic, like kind of editing style, you know, where it's, it's obviously, there's not a lot of scenes with dialogue. A lot of it's voiceover and, you know, characters kind of just like walking around the room or doing something kind of romantic. And I think maybe the kind of the big hurdle to get over this, uh, over in this movie, it's like, these are very vapid people that we're mm-hmm. viewing. This is, these are Austin scenesters. You know what I mean? We have, uh, Ryan Gosling, you know, he's a indie established indie rock guy, you know what I mean, you know. And then you have Rooney Mara who's kind of like on the come up, you know, and and she's, you know, obviously appeasing a lot of men to kind of get, you know, her step above in the scene to the point where she's even sleeping with uh, her former boss Michael Fassbender who's some sort of label head and kind of what? Some sort of mystic demon, too. Yeah. There's like a weird detour with the Fassbender character where it's like, whoa, this just went like dark tree of life mode slash night of cups mode for a minute on the Fassbender character. Yeah, no, it is. And I think, I think like if you look at like what happens, it's kind of, it is a lot of repetition, kind of these circles of Malik or not Malik, uh, Rooney Mar and Gosling kind of falling in love, but then kind of the Fassbender character of the past kind of infiltrating it and Rooney Mara kind of succumbing to him, you know, and that happens like a few times. And then, uh, eventually kind of 
you know, Gosling starts dating Kate Blanchett, just like in a uh, night of cups, yeah. a very <laughs> oblique Blanchett detour. And then Rooney Mara starts dating a woman, you know what I mean? And then eventually they kind of grow tired of like, kind of, uh, you know, they have, it's, it's a scene full of like romantic moments, like scenes of, a uh, of, you know, like the best times you remember, you know, uh, as a couple. And then, but they kind of redo these scenarios over and over again. And Malik shoots them with great beauty. You know, even what they're doing could kind of seem a little bit corny, but Malik's visual style just is something that pulls it off. Like there's, they'll just be like dancing under like a highway underpass or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like various things like that. And I could see if, you know, I could see someone not enjoying this movie, maybe to the, the very broad characterization and like kind of, uh, avoiding a lot of it like even night of cups kind of has like that singular journey that we go through this is like a very uh very broad movie and it kind of uh it ends with uh you know these two hipsters gosling and mar you know realize like we got to get out of the city and then they just move to the country and get normal jobs which is like on on papers maybe not um i don't know the most intelligent complex whatever thing but that is Ultimately, you know, that's Malik. That's mm-hmm. what he does. Absolutely. And like, I, I he think he loves to party, but he much prefers to run a piece of wheat through his fingers. <laughs> exactly. So I don't know. And like just him, the, the, these music concerts and clubs and, uh, parties and stuff like that. I, I kind of enjoy this more than maybe something like a hidden life where he kind of does kind of hammer in. Uh, more more characterization kind of like the stakes matter more you know we're, we're dealing with the nazis and christians there you know what i mean but like i i feel like uh kind of this broader characterization and kind of just him messing with the visuals for like two hours is something i enjoy a little bit more but uh i i i like it a lot now for our final uh film of malcolm in the middle this week we are going to pay tribute to one of the icons of the podcast um, one third of the reason we do a podcast really. And, uh, to be completely earnest, you know, one of the filmmakers that is the reason I'm interested in art, even, um, Jean-Luc Godard passed away earlier this week. Uh, you'll be hearing this a little later. You know, you already went through all of it. You're gr- You're in the fifth stage of grief by now. Um, and he was a Titan and there's really nothing else we can say. There's, there's more movies for us to talk about. If you've listened to us talk on the podcast before, you know how large his influence looms on us, not just aesthetically, but ideologically and the way we approach things and the way we question things and the combative nature of our podcast, not with ourselves, but with our enemies, uh, the wrongdoers <laughs> of the world. Um, so for this last segment, JT, did you watch a film by Jean-Luc Godard? Um, no, fuck that guy. I uh, um, did like almost it feels like it's a movie about him, but it feels like almost the opposite of like like that. Like it's the biggest insult in every way possible. I watched uh, uh, Godard Mon Amour uh, by Michel uh, Hizanavicius, and it's about Godard in like the late 60s and his romance uh with Anne uh is it Wizemski? Wizemski. Wizemski? Okay. You just take like not even 
like stylistic qualities of like Godard films of that era because it relies on character like narration like just like literalizing their thoughts so much and it's just like picking it's like the worst of like what people do when like talking about Godard is like picking out these stylistic qualities uh from his early films that I think are like obviously like fun like full of life and important and like just sort of the color palette of uh some of those as well and just like stripping them of all meaning possible um godard is like really like i mean the motherfucker in real life was like a goofy kind of dude like i think his (laughs) sense of humor comes through in his film or i mean in his films but like when he proposes um he was like, oh, did you, he's reading the newspaper and he's like, did you see uh, Mr. and Mrs. Me uh, had a baby and they named it Mary, like marry me. And uh, that's like the most like dog shit, terrible thing. Like, it's just so like and the main conflict of the movie is like Godard in like sort of like 67, 68, like feeling the need to like make his films more like actively political and it's like that type of engagement with radical politics is like played against him and his new like young wife of like a bourgeois background and you would think if you're making a movie about a filmmaker that regardless of like his personal faults or whatever or what how you perceive that you would like sort of sense like an importance uh of his artistry and there would be some sort of reflection there but it's just sort of the i don't know it feels like kind of the woody allen uh stardust memories thing uh (laughs) like happens to him a lot where it's like people are like oh i preferred your earlier funnier films and like schmucks keep coming up to him and be like well why are you why'd you change this stuff you you used to have the sauce jlg like what happened like why are you doing this and like it never shows that like godard's struggle with like becoming a more like radical like i mean like i would say certainly even his earlier films like the the politics angle is unavoidable but like when he's struggling with becoming more actively political especially at the moment that you're at in like global politics and like paris at that time it just does such little service and it shows that like uh, like it feels like Godard becoming a political filmmaker is a very selfish thing to do <laughs> rather than just like, Oh, like why, like why can't he just love his wife? And it's like, <laughs> that's a very fucking narrow perspective to have, especially for like, like someone who is like very clearly concerned that like being an artist is a very privileged like position to take. Like you have some, like if you, hold a position as like a genius or an innovator like whether or not like that is true like i I, like whether or not he believes that he feels that he should use his platform to better the world and like to make like to go 
like with something he legitimately believes in and it explores nothing about the political or like whether or not uh, the filmmaker agrees with what Godard is doing politically like it doesn't like I don't fucking give a shit but like the fact that it never sees through like with how Godard could possibly like go this way is ridiculous and it just I don't know it, it's so frustrating just a complete piece of shit like awful movie there's another like dog shit scene where they're talking about um how she's going to do like a nude scene and there it's like uh louis garrel and her naked and you see his dick and it's just like they're talking about doing a nude scene in the scene and it's just like oh isn't it is kind of like a like the godard like like a meta bullshit thing <laughs> yeah, it's like contempt isn't it yeah, yeah, and it's like fuck off. Like this is the most watered down, like horseshit version of this. I uh, like, and it's not even like, it, it, like for a movie that you think is doing like '60s Godard stuff would have more stylistic, like swinging for the fences stuff. There's like barely any of it. It's mostly just fucking boring. So not even worth like, like the hate watch you want to do. Or, like, sort of rubbernecking, like, at the ex- car crash or dead animal on the side of the road. Just skip it. Who cares? Throw it's this a- one in the bin. It sounds like it kind of has, like, that, like, uh, anti-Bernie rhetoric where it's like, oh, yeah, he's socialist, but how does he treat his wife? You know what I mean? <laughs> These socialist men, they don't treat their wife right. Uh, th- I think that same guy who directed that movie. He did The Artist. The Artist, right? So it's like, it, he's probably... Michael he, having a nice one? Yeah, Michael having <laughs> have a good life or something. Um, he's he's probably like, wins the best picture. He's like, that's something you never did, Godard, huh? You know, you never exactly. won this. And then, you know, he gets goes back to French society and, you know, there's the, the smarty pants cinephiles that are like, oh, yeah, The Artist, uh, yeah, that's a bit, uh, you know... Bad. It's a bit that kind of sucks, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I'll show you, Godard, and all you people." That's that's my reading of the movie. I haven't seen. Uh, so it shows them making La Chinoise, right? Does it go yeah. into like two or three things I know about her, like with Wazemski? Um, like a little bit. Like it's mostly just them, like on vacation, like for at points, <sighs> and then like them participating in uh protesting in the streets there's a lot of godard in like student unions and like young people being like you're full of shit godard like fuck you um and just like not taking him seriously yeah that sounds like a horrible movie we should watch real godard movies instead uh if you want a portrait of that time check out two or three things i know about her or la chinoise playing now (laughs) some movie phone feelings to that if the movie you're looking for is two or three things I know about her, stay on the line. We'll be right back on extended clip. <laughs> Street
Dragged Across Concrete by S. Craig Zoller. You'll see 28 listed, or sorry, you'll see 2018 listed as a release date, but no one got to watch it other than like Festival Goons until 2019. So it's a 2019 movie. Um, It is a 2019 crime movie starring Mel Gibson, Vince Vaughn, and Tori Kittles. Uh, with some great supporting performances. You know, you got, uh, what's her name, Jennifer Carpenter and the god Fred Melamed, another god, Udo Kier. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael yeah. J. White, Michael martial J. arts White. legend. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is a crime movie. Um, it's very zeitgeisty, if oh, you yeah. will. Um, it took a lot of controversy when it came out for being, you know, a conservative movie and it was funded by a conservative group, you know, or whatever. And like, uh, you know, it's got all these Hollywood conservatives on it. Mel Gibson, Vince Vaughn. And sorry, what was that JT? I said, just like our podcast. Oh, of course. Of course. Um, so, and we're not talking Peter Till. We're talking, uh, (laughs) Bolsonaro, you know, (laughs) people with real power. Yeah. We don't fuck around with that, you know, (laughs) crypto fascist stuff. We're straight up like, you know, capital uh, F with it. (laughs) Uh, So this is S. Craig Zoller's third, uh, written and directed film. Uh, his previous two both are in the kind of exploitation genre film realm like this one. Uh, and they both have this kind of antiseptic and slow style that gets very detached. And this one is the furthest expansion of that. You know, the film is shot super wide. It's in scope, but every shot super wide, short focal lengths and digitally manipulated to bits in terms of the color grading and stuff. And there's a ton of negative space and noise and very few close-ups on faces. And it's just a film that builds atmosphere through, you know, shot selection and gelled lighting and heavy breathing of characters uh, so well. And uh, yeah, it's a great crime story. You got Tori Kittles fresh out of jail. Uh, What's his character's name again? Um, Slim. Yeah, Henry, a.k.a. Slim, yeah. uh, Tori Kittles' character. He went to jail because there was a guy who crippled his younger brother, and he seriously injured that man. So upon returning from jail, he sees you know his mom and his little brother living in this dilapidated apartment. Mom's letting white guys fuck her for money, you know? Uh, and it's just, uh, it's not a good situation at all. And he wants to just reacclimate himself before he gets into any crime to you know help the family out uh other side of town you got the opposite kind of situation rather than a struggling black family uh well it's not quite the 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 film will tell you that it's not quite the opposite situation yeah there's the push and pull you got the working class white family uh held down by mel gibson and i love the cut from one story to another where you know you have this like hazy apartment that Tori Kittles is in with all these weird gelled lights and everything uh, as he's kind of having it out with his mom and having this heart to heart with his bro and then it cuts to Mel Gibson on a fire escape and everything is just completely like crisp cold like ice cold color grading you know Uh, just completely opposite composition and texture wise uh, to see what Mel Gibson is up to Mel Gibson is a 
police officer who's been, uh, you know, he's been a detective on the beat for fucking decades and decades. His ex-partner is now the big boss, you know, Don Johnson. Uh, so he's working with a partner 20 years his junior, and he just gets more and more brutal and racist every day. His wife, an ex-cop, uh, at one point says, You know, I never thought I was a racist before living in this area. Uh, she, you know, she even says at one point, look, I'm as liberal as an ex-cop can get. Uh, dot 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 so yeah that's where like the american politics side of things comes in is um the positioning of them and of course vince vaughn also just off to the side with his uh interracial incoming marriage uh and it's just it's a it's a big playground for zoller to uh troll a little bit you know maybe uh, trigger some people a little bit uh but really it's just a great space for a fucking nasty gnarly hateful crime movie no yeah this this movie definitely i mean and it's kind of like almost uh sparse editing you know what i mean it's kind of uh the style just being so like it reminds me like you know you're talking about that scene of Gibson on the fire escape and then you have the half smoking cigarette you know it's it's taking cues um from noir but you know bringing it to the modern era I don't know like it, it does that Eastwood thing too where it's you know Zaller will indulge in uh kind of the ugliness of a room as yeah. well and uh I, I think all of this you know the kind of languid pacing that you know the nastiness that you know is bursting at the seams kind of the uh definitely like the film critic bait he lies in there his propensity for uh you know using some uh what do you call it I, foul language foul well foul language of course but like kind of uh hateful mindsets in characters yeah hateful characters mind- yeah. espousing their own mindsets which happen to be very hateful and wrong and often can be very funny and cinematic as well yeah, and, and like, it's like these are cops we're talking about. These are like yeah. middle America, uh, you know, working class cops who a big observation I took away from this time around is much like other kind of working class movies. These guys are mainly presented as dudes who just want to get to lunch. Like on a day to day level, they want to get to lunch and on a bigger picture, they just want to take care of their family, you know, simple as. But, yeah, you choose to be a cop, you know. Uh, and then also same with Tori Kittles' character. It's like he just he just wants to take care of his family, you know. Uh, and these are the two routes you can take. And maybe that's what Zoller's presenting you, is that in this completely barren, fucked up America that we're in, because look at the way he presents these fucking empty downtown districts and these, you know, stores with no one in them and these fucking diners with one crank waitress being the only other person. It's like America is dead in this movie, basically. (laughs) And your only options are either to be a cop or a criminal. Either be a criminal and kill people with no abandon or be a cop and be part of the fascist machine, which maybe Zoller doesn't think it is the fascist machine. But, you know, those are your options. You're either fascist or you're an Antifa criminal. Uh, And uh, I don't know. I mean, like, that's like in terms of the politics, like it is very interesting. Like, obviously, I think it does lean like heavily into a type of conservative nihilism. But I think that like you like there's a base level of understanding of how terrible things are in the present moment that is like true of like. I mean, like, when people are trying to be like, oh, like, when fucking, like, brain-dead liberals are like, how did people vote for, like, Trump? 
particularly hearkening back to like 2016 like Hillary stuff it was because he was like talking about things are bad there are problems I mean obviously you're tackling it with like racist like awful solutions but I think there's the base level there of like seeing the world as like entirely bleak now and just sort of hollow and like I, I mean I'm certain Zollett, like he might be a little bit more into the crime statistics statistics end of things than <laughs> i am uh for sure but like i i think the acknowledging that things are like potentially fucked up beyond repair is very um very on point and just the way he expresses that through cold digital cinematography like it feels very much so again like i i think we might have talked about it in the previous iteration of the podcast i feel like there are a lot of like filmmakers struggle to like play with digital and are shooting like digital as film and are not like fooling around with the texture like when we talked about like gone girl like fincher uses that like sterile digital texture to great purposes and like here even when they're like when the stakeout like goes from like the dead of night into like the bright like city it just still feels like just ugh, like disgusting like <laughs> awful like it's it's hollow and uh yeah I, I don't know it's uh and just the way as it gets even further just like their ending i mean not like the proper ending but like ending in like the swamp and like this bog where it's so dark is just uh i don't know f- feels very on point with where we're going yeah, I mean, that lot by the swamp where most of the third act takes place just has this mustard gas atmosphere. It just has this yellow sheen achieved through fog and other industrial type shit going on. Plus, just like the smoke created from all the violence and cars running through and crashing into each other as they do a couple times in that finale. And it's just, I, I think that that's really what the whole film builds to. You know, there's so many great moments like that. Um, and so many weird spaces that are explored, but that space is just like a perfect arena for someone like Zoller just to shoot these like epic wide shots with so much, you know, depth being added through the texture in the air. Um, but I, I, to get back to the, the plot of the film, if you were, uh, as we said, on the fire escape, you get our two heroes, uh, <laughs> Mel and Vince, and uh, they get caught in 4k with a cell phone fucking uh you know mel's got his boot on a dude's face that he's arresting and he you get a bone crunching sound effect as he you know turns his heel over kind of on him and it's it's pretty fucking gnarly and then you get a very long scene with don johnson who's like the the squad chief or whatever who used to be uh the partner of mel gibson telling them you know look it's not the way it used to be we can't get away with this stuff anymore he drops a great line he says there's there's digital eyes everywhere, which is like, hey, thousand eyes of Dr. Mabusa, right? Yeah. And like, I love that scene because it, I think it, you know, reflects the push and pull dynamic of the whole movie, right? Like, I think the movie goes out of its way to show, you know, Mel kind of being, you know, somewhat unsavory, but he, Zaller also knows there's great pleasure in kind of like this buddy hangout, uh, you know, stakeout type of feel with Vaughn and Gibson. You know, and there's a lot of stuff like that. That that scene, you know, he does eventually kind of 
you know, he tells them to cool it down, but it, you know, they kind of have a minute where they just kind of, uh, you know, espouse conservative beliefs to each other back and forth in agreement, kind of like politics. It's everywhere these days, you know, and stuff like that. But <clears throat> once Vaughn leaves the scene and it's just Gibson and Don Johnson who were former partners, Johnson goes, you know, very personal goes at, you know, Gibson's emotion calls him out. You know, you're, like you're you're not where you you're supposed to be hypothetically you know in this detective career and you're going to become you know he said a, a steamrolling machine taking down everything in its sight you know what i mean yeah. so he he recognizes the the nastiness in him but you know still has you know he's still the uh, the you know he's a police chief or whatever yeah i mean i think that scene is important to note you know how certain american mindsets are changing just yeah. like clearly mel gibson's character used to be still hardcore but clearly he's gotten so much more racist and violent like that's clearly what don johnson is saying yeah like, dude you were not this racist 10 years ago you know yeah uh and hey Obama, you know, they, he was, and, <laughs> you never know what's going to happen with two terms of a, uh, you know, a Democrat of color to a guy like the Mel Gibson character. Uh, what, what the brain on cable news, Fox <laughs> news will do to you. Uh, because that, you know, that's really what it is more than it's not like the, the actual policies in place by presidents that are, you know, what really drives these people crazy. It's the, it's the media take on it kind of, and the, the, the constant, you know, barraging of information that's usually just horrible sounding. And I think the the way they react to it is a very realistic way. I think a lot of, you know, police do kind of react to kind of the media fervor around police mm -hmm. violence, right? Kind of like people are overreacting. Like that guy was a bad dude. He was selling drugs to children. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, uh, it's uh you know i think i mean that's that's what you know kind of like the people who are upset with these this movie's politics is that i don't think he's you know he does definitely doesn't do any favors you know to these police characters you know goes doesn't valorize them i mean in the end they're the losers you yeah. know what i mean so it's like i I really, I, I, I think I see where people are coming from, but like in terms of like what's actually on the screen, I mean, this is a pretty brutal, you know, depiction of police, definitely compared to most crime, you know, mainstream crime movies that come out. I think you could be anti-crime, the idea of crime and anti-police. Right? Yeah. Like, like this movie is very nihilistic, as JT said, and maybe it is a conservative nihilism, but it's like clearly you know, this movie is not valorizing cops at all. This is just like, I, it comes off as totally phony when Mel Gibson tries to go like Michael Mann mode in the car when he's like, yeah. you know, we deserve fair compensation for our, you know, our skilled labor or something like that. It's like that. It doesn't sound right coming out of his mouth because he probably doesn't believe it. And then Vince kind of just agrees to it just almost kind of out of like a, police like duty it is kind of like vince kind of just goes yeah. along with mel just kind of p out of pure pure duty and like you know it uh maybe he shouldn't think that way it didn't lead him to anywhere good engage into your girlfriend over the phone man come on oh, take yeah. her out to dinner take and her just out like, to dinner just like if it it doesn't redeem him even in the slightest like no. i think being like the 
slightly more sympathetic of the two of them. He, I Zarn don't even think even... so, dude. Vaughn is a nothing of a per- Vaughn is a meatball in this fucking movie, dude. Like he I think he's, even get, he's like, so the... phony. Like the yeah. way he talks to the jeweler, he's like, no, everyone from New York can call me Tony. Like uh, just uh, uh, the biggest phony every ever in the way he like keeps his car all clean and everything like that. Yeah. Like he just he, he seems like a huge phony. Yeah, I guess yeah. he's less racist on paper. He's like, less racist on paper. He yeah. still makes racist jokes. Like clearly, okay, he has a black fiance, yeah. but like still, when they're getting suspended uh, in that Don Johnson scene, he's like, "Hey, I'm not racist." Every Martin Luther King Day, I get two dark roasts, and it's like met with the most deadening silence. Yeah, just <laughs> a thud <laughs> of silence on that joke. That bit was just like poorly timed. I think what makes this movie so interesting, right, is you know you have Henry Slim, you know the Slim character, and then Mel Gibson, because you know I just call it Mel Gibson, right, because I think the casting of Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn are is also inflammatory in itself. Right? Oh yeah, to outspoken Hollywood conservatives, you know, you know, in terms of actors, I'm sure there's, you know, a lot of the money men, I'm sure they're conservative, but like, uh, you know, in terms of actors, you know, not a lot of people are publicly doing that. You don't want to end up like, you know, dumbass Gina Carano doing like Breitbart movies. Yeah. Um, so like, I think, which is also, it's just hilarious to stop and think for a second that it's like literally only the actors and writers are liberal in TV and movies. Yeah. Like, every <laughs> single person on set is conservative. <laughs> like uh, it's, uh, it's not the camera people, but everyone else. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's rare to find yeah. like a liberal or lefty, even like, you know, art department or construction yeah. crew or a grip department or something like that. We don't want to generalize funny. here, but there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of that. There there's is, there's a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, like... It's a ha- funny dichotomy between the actors and literally everyone who makes the thing. True. No, it is. It's, you know, and I think that's an unexplored tension, right? Yeah. These... Zaller's getting at some unexplored tension, pitting two stereotypes, right? The black criminal and the racist cop against each other. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, he, you know, has more sympathy for for the criminal. But, like, I think, you know, he's, he's trying to... Uh, He's trying to subvert things a little bit. I think, you know, the fact that Gibson is the more sympathetic character than Vince Vaughn, because, you know, he's got a disabled wife as well. You know yeah. what I mean? And uh, and I, I think it's, uh, you know, Zaller's mission here is, you know, not everything's so black and white. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it is, you know... Maybe it's effective. It's effective, right? Like I think people It's just a fucking thorny, difficult movie that like you can't just have a clean takeaway from yeah. it. You can't have a this movie is this type of politic because of this. Like you're never gonna get that. You just have to it's a fucking like it's a grindhouse movie. Yeah. It it has more of an art house presentation purely through the pacing. Uh the pacing is what makes it a two hour and forty minute movie, and we haven't talked about that yet. Uh, but it really is just like a na- it, it's a nasty little tale. It's a nasty it's little a tale. It's a nasty little tale. Of some some people doing some nasty things. <laughs> yeah, no. It's it is like trying to get a clean read on the movie is obviously like a fool's errand. I mean, I think you can like point into like particular paths where it's just like okay, well like there are some like like Gibson's family does get the the gold at the end or whatever. Like, just, like, not the gold, because it's a very small portion of it. Or, like, you can read any, like, little minor, like, point. But I think Zoller 
regardless of politics, is like too intelligent of a filmmaker to be seeking out to produce something that's like solely like ideological and like it is like it's an interesting movie because it is exploring that gray area or the tension between the black and white there and uh yeah i don't know so after they are suspended uh gibson comes across a tip of some shit going down from udo kier who works in the back of a suit store and keeps intel on local crime, I guess. That's what he's up to. Is that? Yeah, I don't know what the fuck's going on with Udo Kier's character, but he's cool, and he's the one who puts the plot into motion. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe it's just like he's he's someone who, you know, if there's any sort of crime going on in town, he's getting a little piece, maybe. Okay, okay, he wants a piece of the action. So it turns into basically an hour-long stakeout then. Um, we have our, you know, motivation. We have our little personal tales from each of the characters. And, uh, you know, Gibson and Vaughn get in the car. They drive to the location and they stake it out. And there's some really great shots of them zooming in with a little DSLR. You know, I love the the little flip out monitor that they shoot constantly for this. Uh, lots of great just like hangout vibes in the stakeout. I love, you know, because as we say it's a super slowly paced movie. The dialogue, there's lots of room to breathe between the dialogue. The takes are all very long. The scenes themselves are very long. It's a long movie, you know. Uh, a, a hack would make this 100 minutes with the same script, basically. But it's two hours, 40 minutes. Uh, so I And I think the passage of time in that stakeout mode is just unbelievable. I mean, just going across two different times where... They go out for two egg salad sandwiches and a root beer, you know, <laughs> yeah. like uh, that using that as a markage of the passage of time is just amazing. And uh, yeah, I just really love those vibes. And then there's one scene in particular slightly after. I mean, I think it's after the stakeout. It's when we're ramping into getting into the heist <laughs> there where I think like this scene, like upon reflection, like unlocks like to me again the nihilism of the movie like overarching like any like uh, more like left right like whatever is the jennifer carpenter character oh like, my we god see that scene is unbelievable just like just like getting an introduction to a woman who's just like i just want to be home with my baby i just want to be with my newborn baby like why do i have to work like I had three months maternity just introducing her only so that like when she gets domed like at the end of like her I don't know 10 15 minute stretch it's just like oh this this is horrible this is miserable (laughs) just to to amp up like how scummy and dirty and vile the movie is and another nihilistic scene, a little detour right when it starts, the, uh, the the camp out, the stakeout, is your introduction to this kind of criminal underworld that we see, the real villains of the movie. Yeah. Uh, whether your hero selection is Tory Kittles or Mel Gibson, the villain is this group of like weird Aryan uh, dressed in all black with goggles, dudes who are very efficient and professional. 
uh, like fucking, they are hyper fixated on efficient hyper violence, kind of. Uh, so you see a little grocery store robbery. Uh, again, just a nice lingering shot on a dude who will die uh, to introduce that. You know, you get the dude uh, working behind the counter with the cigarette hanging out of his mouth, watching the news, yeah. and you hang on him for like a minute, and you're like, oh, that's what this scene is. Now I remember. And the dude just walks in and. The, the casualness of the violence in that is so nihilistic. Uh, and then that guy, you know, his next hit is those two guys in the car who one of them, he puts the sombrero on, you know, oh, yeah. they have, they have the little deadpan humor, but these guys are, these guys are freaks. These, these bad guys in this movie, um, they're super racist for one. They, they don't even allow Tory Kittles, uh, and Michael J. White to appear as they are. They make them go in like, gray face yeah no this yeah these guys are more racist it's the pale sack in there the one that looks like a i know which one it is careful not to pop his liver that is the worst smell in the world black guys especially it is like i think like that's where zaller you know his propensity for playing with racial stereotypes comes in like even you know the shop owner asian shop owner that shoots up the guy you know, the guy's named Paco and he puts a sombrero on him after he kills him. And, you and know, the Asian store owner also has like a rifle behind the counter yeah. that he reaches for. And that's why he gets killed. Just playing into all of the stereotypes, of these kind of things. And I mean, Zoller, he, he's just it's 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 just a pulp novel, baby. And speaking of pulp fiction, there is quite a bit of like Tarantino-esque dialogue, you know. I don't know, like especially some of the some of the black dialogue is very Tarantinian, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think Tarantino is clearly a huge inspiration on Zoller. It's like, you're just taking all these grindhouse elements and you're pushing them through your style of cinema, which is formally very different than those inspirations. But the content is going to be just as juicy and fucking gnarly. And they're both very writerly filmmakers as well. No, totally. Just the way like how characters are introduced and they get like a, like a little drop of humanity to towards them. You know what I mean? A lot of details like that and like you know everyone everyone gets you know their little moments you know probably besides like the ultra racist efficient criminals yeah those guys are just pure evil yeah a a force of pure evil i mean i i I, with those guys i you know much like uh i feel like zoller is himself you know they're they're interested in like the you know like you said very efficient violence and then you know all the gear right like i love uh, just the inspection of the armored van and mm-hmm. kind of Zoller showing off like this van with airless tires, a little, sh- little shooting. Yeah. The hole. slat. Yeah. 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 And you know, it being bulletproof and whatnot. And you know, that it's a uh, details like this that really give the movie it's punch, right? Cause it is slow, but it is punctuated with mm-hmm. like, you know, hyper violent and just, you know, nastiness in general. The stakeout then leads them to following the the van where it's all going down. That van that Malcolm just talked about with the uh, the shooting slats and the the you know uh, tires that can't get shot out, uh, the airless tires and the bulletproof sides and everything. 
Um, they pull up to the bank. Turns out it's a bank robbery. And it turns out it's, you know, Jennifer Carpenter, the scene we just watched of her not being able to leave her child. That's where she goes to work. And uh, she's greeted, of course, by Fred Melamed. And the choice, speaking of stereotypes. Oh, there's the Jewish the, stereotypes. The, the, the choice movie. to have <laughs> Fred Melamed of all character actors to be the banker in this movie is oh. one of the funniest things ever to me. I mean, he's the god. Like, Cy Abelman is who yeah. most listeners would know him as from a serious man. But one of the great character actors. I, I, did, I do have to say, you know, judge me... You know, hey, if there's a finger pointing, if you're pointing a finger at someone, that's four pointing back at you before it's you judge true, me. It's true. It's true. But uh, the also the jeweler character that Vince talks oh to, God. he's like, oh, do you need <laughs> do you need a therapist? Um, I have three relatives that are therapists and three relatives <laughs> that are lawyers. <laughs> you're Just like, okay, that. all right, all right, all right. Like, all right. what is the point of that? <laughs> it's very silly, though. Um, He's just having fun. Yeah. But <laughs> Melamed lays it on so thick to Jennifer Carpenter. Like, knowing that... I don't know. I mean, JT, this was your first time watching it, right? Yeah. So, knowing now that she's going to die... I mean, that dialogue where he's like... Welcome back. Welcome back, and congratulations on bringing such a lovely boy child into this world. Thank you, Mr. Edmonton. All of us at the bank have great expectations for your boy. Wondrous expectations. On a global scale. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's watching that and knowing she's going to bite the dust was fucking hilarious to me. I've rewatched because just Melamed is hamming it up so hard, despite the fact that, you know, Carpenter, she wasn't hamming it up. She gave a very gripping performance, mm-hmm. and her stuff is like extremely tragic. It's the most moving stuff in the movie for me. It's, it's, it feels insane. It feels yeah. like the Audrey stuff in Twin Peaks, The Return, where it's like five episodes of her and her weird husband trying to leave the house. You know, <laughs> it, uh, like that kind of struggle was going on there. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I think other people have noted this, but it's definitely one of the first films to kind of reflect that that style of Twin Peaks, The Return. And like, I, I like, you know, I think some people like this, some people don't, you know and I mean? Maybe somewhat of a controversial scene or sequence but it is like i do like that you kind of uh you get like a little bit of life outside of like these you know two stereotypes and you know these uh the life of crime you know just the how does this affect uh normal people you know copper coins if any but good to hear things articulated trusted bank of north bulwark that isn't ambiguous is that an embrasure what's an embrasure See that opening? The horizontal slit above the word security. A guy's in there. So it's a robbery. Yep. JT, what did you think of the uh, the the bank robbery scene? That very prolonged set piece was great and miserable. I like you bringing up uh, the return for this because I feel like that does kind of. I'm not say like make it click, but I feel like that's a very apt like stylistic comparison because going in, this is my first dollar. What I like heard a lot of people um, say that we, he was slow in terms of his style, and I was like, okay, but like, how does that like 
translate to like a genre film especially one like this like a lot of stakeout stuff i was like how like how is that gonna go slow and initially my thought was like oh like a little bit less dialogue but it's quite the opposite there's just so much fucking dialogue that like all i mean i think some of the pacing of it is like a little bit like prolonged too where it's just like characters will not respond like promptly or on time but I just love it. Like you're just like stewing in scenes for like minutes longer than you would in any other type of any other film of this type. And it just uh, I don't know. It's it's fun living in a dirty, low, nasty world <laughs> sometimes. Like you just want to you want to be there. You're uh, exploring the crevices of, the, of our dirty world. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is, I don't know if we've quite gone to this, but this movie is kind of a little disaffected. It's a little bit strange, I would say, you know what I mean? For as, um, you know, it's not really, you know, there's no wizards and goblins in this, you know what I mean? There's no, it's not, or, you know what I mean? There's no, it's, it's using the realism that it's putting out and it's just, you know, there's a little bit of a stilted quality to it sometimes, or like what you're saying like with Vince Vaughn, right? Some you, you feel like characters sometimes are not saying what they really mean or whatever, or what they're saying is like a lie that they're telling themselves. But like, I think, yeah, like the, like the, the, the pacing, not only of, you know, the movie, but like the dialogue and how people talk to each other. I think it gives this movie just a little bit of strangeness too. And, it, you know, all the aspects we've been talking about, you know, it's a very, it's an original recipe. You know, it's a it's a complex stew that we're working with. As Craig Zoller original recipe is great. <laughs> <laughs> All 1488 seasonings. Wow. Yeah, he's racist. I said it. <laughs> You're canceled. Sorry. S. Sorry, Zoller. Yo, thought- what do you think the S stands for? SS? <laughs> <laughs> So after the bank robbery goes down, you know, they go to their uh, little drop point where they're going to like dump the car, make an exchange, whatever. And uh, Gibson and Vaughn keep tailing them. Shit starts to go down, of course. And it's there's a great cut from like the first time they shoot one of their own guys to Gibson and Vaughn pulling up, like putting on these fucking like bulletproof masks, basically. And uh, it's just setting the scene. You get all these great wide shots of this insane atmosphere. Just I can't speak highly enough of that setting for that final shootout. And it's, you know, you're talking about Zoller working with negative space, you know, the ultimate negative space location a dark parking lot, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And it's, uh, it's very like, uh, it's very sparse. You kind of have two things going on, right? You have, uh, uh, slim and his, you know, his part black partner, both of them black kind of being, uh, trying to make an escape, you know, from these Nazi criminals. And then you have, you know, once that gets underway, then, you know, Gibson and Vaughn show up and further complicate things. And so, you know, it kind of shifts to that, but then, you know, you're reminded that, you know, Slim is still there, you know what I mean? And like, just, uh, what he does, you know what I mean? I think, uh, regardless of anyone's thoughts on this film, what, what he does with 45 minutes in a parking lot, you know, is, is insanely inventive. You know, he finds every crack and crevice and every aspect to, uh, you know, to tackle with it. 
Oh, absolutely. And I mean, fucking even Soderbergh's never had a set piece as yellow as this. You know, this is <laughs> one of the yellow, the weird, pungent, dark yellow thing. Uh, the most of that color I've ever seen. The the mustard gas atmosphere, you know, and uh, it's it's wild. It's just an incredible drawn out showdown. I'm not going to, you know, drag out every beat of the action, but it ends with. Tori Kittles and Mel Gibson standing. Great shot. Low-level shot of them both on the floor, kind of. Uh, or on the ground, rather, not floor. But, you know, there's a little leverage at play. Tori Kittles has a video of Mel Gibson killing a white woman. Uh, and, you know, uh, there's the, the gold for them to split with them two being the only ones alive. And uh, they they work together for a little bit. And, the, and there's so much tension there. Oh, yeah. I love the tension when they work together because... That scene where they're towing the getaway car, they're each in a separate car, and you just get shots of each of them with that music playing in the background, and you're like, what? They, You know exactly what they're thinking. They're contemplating whether or not they're going to fucking ditch the other guy and make off with all the gold. Who do you think makes the first move? It's fucking Mel Gibson, and you don't know if Tori Kittles is being truthful or not when he says, you know... You just had to trust me. I was going to do the split with you. We had the split 60-40. Yeah. You don't know if he's being truthful True. on that. But he does feel sympathy for what Mel said about, you know, his wife with MS and his daughter who's being, you know, assaulted on the street. And so he gives, he even is like, uh, he doesn't give him the 40%. He's like, you're not getting the 40%. Like, you're dying. I'm going to mm-hmm. give you a little bit. But he does give him a little bit. And um, he buries his friend and Mel and Vince uh and just i don't know man visually i love that like after we leave the yellow hell uh we then just go deeper into the swamp and it's all blue and green as the sun is slowly starting to come up at you know the end of a one really three crazy nights or however long the stakeout was from the start you think about that in terms of like the pacing and the timing of this film is just incredible. Like mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. It, it's a film that leaves me in awe every time it wraps up. And the tension that, you know, uh, Henry and, you know, the Mel Gibson character have, it's, you know, it's, it's much more complex because you're not just dealing with, you know, two criminals who, you know, can't trust each other. Mel Gibson acts like a cop throughout the whole mm-hmm. thing, right? He, I think he says this maybe even three times, but he keeps taking precautions of like, you know, unloading guns or whatever. I forgot exactly what he does, but he keeps saying he's like, to avoid temptation because yeah. <laughs> his natural, you know, nature as a police officer is to have an upper hand mm-hmm. in the situation. And whether you're, you're right, we don't know if Kittles would be, you know, give him that honest split, but it's, it's ultimately kind of Mel's, you know, paranoid cop like nature that does him in, in at the end. During that set piece, we get some, probably the most racist part of the movie where uh, the other black guy in the van is, you know, being dissected because he swallowed the key to get to the gold. So these like white supremacist supremacist criminals are slicing open his, open his body to get to the stomach. And one of them says, you know, make sure you don't pop the liver. It's the worst smell, especially black guys. And it's like, how racist do you have to be? To know, or at least think, not know, but to have that prejudice to think that black guys' livers smell worse than white guys. Like, those guys are operating on scientific levels of racism. Also, 
there's some competition for most races like the the assault scene on the daughter in the oh street, yeah that is that, hilarious the, the the racist imagery there is like the daughter pulpable. just like getting a fucking slurpee or an orange soda to the face by like a group of black teens smoking a blunt and riding a bicycle like it's it's meant to fucking make the conservative viewers of this movie go rage mode. Yeah. You know? yeah. But obviously mm-hmm. a fair and balanced viewer is just gonna be like, this is a weird scene, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's it's off kilter just like the Jennifer Carpenter baby seat is off kilter. Yeah. It's all fucking weird. You're like, why is this weirdo girl walking by my sidewalk? You know? Yeah. I, I, I hope she gets splashed. That's that was my thoughts during <laughs> the scene. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it ends with Tori Kittles having this like mansion on the beach, you know, where it's like, mom, I know you like to get your massage while you're looking at the ocean. That felt very crime novel. Like the, yeah. the all, the all white, all white house with like the luxuries and stuff like that. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. And he reunited with his brother and they're going to play some video games together. And, uh, you know, it's, it's nice. Uh, JT, what do you think about like the ending of this? Um, yeah, I feel like it's very apt for where we go. Like, I like with, uh, I like that Kittle's journey is what, like, bookends it. Like, opening with his story and then ending it as well. Like, even though we do spend most of the time with Gibson and Vaughn, I think that, like, the weight that Zoller is giving his story does, like, I don't know, it is, like, part of like if it was only gibson and vaughn there would be a significantly less uh like coherent argument for like the complications of this film um but yeah i don't know i think it it ends on top i mean especially following that like i like the little like i don't know i feel like you could go out with maybe like not the little uh aside at the end because i do love that like swamp imagery so much but returning with him like playing the video game uh with his brother as well i feel like hits like the thematic beats very well uh bullet rating um yeah i'm gonna go four bullets uh great introduction to zoller for me um feels very novelistic and eerie and is exactly the type of vile uncomfortable i want from this exploitation uh style and yeah i just want to i mean you can say a lot of things about uh dr mabusa but i don't think he was this racist i mean just kidding it's the (laughs) 1920s in germany he casually believed like like things like to, like I don't know, he was probably on the side with the guys. JT in the van. was about to say something super. He was like, he casually believed, oh, I shouldn't even say this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have anything locked and loaded there. I'm yeah, just we're sure, he, we're sure. He casually believed like things probably twenty times more racist than this. Yeah, like the just street level things Germans were saying about the Jewish people at this time like far more racist than anything in this movie. So why don't you keep that into consideration? True. Yeah, next time you want to criticize S. Craig Zoller for being racist, why don't you think about the Jews in Nazi Germany? Yeah. <laughs> this is not Dr. Mabuse, right? Uh, Malcolm, what about you? I mean, four bullets. Yeah, this is... I've, I've seen this movie quite a bit. I think this is my fourth time watching it, and it's. I was surprised by how... 
how the tension maintains and mm-hmm. kind of just the kind of uh, the off kilterness that Zahler puts throughout this movie is very, very palpable and interesting, but also like doesn't quite draw attention to itself. I think, uh, you know, even more so than his previous, you know, two movies, there's just the layers of complexity is, is just, uh, is greatly appreciated. And I think, you know, like I said, him playing with this push pull, playing with stereotypes, being, you know, a nasty little troll, you know what I mean? Obviously putting scenes into, to bait people or whatever. I think, I don't know. It just creates an interesting dynamic that, you know, is not seen in a lot of modern movies, but also, I don't know, taps into the modern times or whatever. So, uh, you know, I think this is a common refrain, right? But it's like a lot of these great directors, right? They're stay they're staying making period pieces, man. They're not, you know, and those period pieces may be great, but Zaller, he's willing to get into the mud, you know, regardless of what people, you know, might take away from it. So, uh, you know, I admire that. I am also going to go four bullets on this. It's like a high four, but it just keeps staying at a four every time I watch. Yeah, I've watched this three times as well. You know, it's a, it's, it's like, I don't want to say it like grows or expands on every viewing, but it stays so perfectly tightly wound and I still get so much joy out of it. You know, it's just such a fun genre movie Mm -hmm. and the style never really ages for me. It's just such a great example of what you could do with like a low budget digital setup, you know? And uh, yeah, I just think this is like super solid. It's like, it's not just that it's a solid movie. I think it's a very important movie. It's that's why we're doing it here. Look, there are plenty of five bullet classics we could have done for this time frame. Yeah. We could have done The Irishman. Ooh. We could have done Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. True. We already did Once yeah. Upon a Time in Hollywood. But, you know, there are other great movies that came out in this time. But I wanted to do Dragged Across Concrete because I think this film kind of deserves to be canonized for this period in time. Yeah. The way people talk about politics in movies, the way people talk about politics on the internet, the way that all of that is infused into movies and the way people talk about movies. I I just feel like this was just a lightning rod. And for some people, it struck them negatively. But for me, it's a great movie. For me, I brought my umbrella. (laughs) Hater's about to get rained on. Um, so that'll do it for our double feature this week. Let's move on to some emails. We haven't done emails for the, or we did one email, but, uh, do we have one? We have three. Oh, oh we my have three. God. Our first one comes from, I think the guy who initially was our first emailer, uh, Robert, what's a movie ending that bothers you and how would you fix it? Oh God. All right. Wow. We'll have to go into the memory base for this one. So I'm thinking about the ending of the passion of the Christ, right? mm <laughs> <laughs> mm yeah, wait, wait a second. <laughs> Do you wish he didn't rise again? That's I kinda, just think that's that I up. prefer a more realistic storytelling <laughs> style. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God, God's not real, and you know, Scorsese had a, a responsibility as a filmmaker to point that well, out. Well, I was talking about Mel's passion. Oh, well, you know, same thing. Same thing. It is the same thing. <laughs> same, the same, movie, same right? movie, basically, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know what's really weird is that I've never really felt like that ending ruined the movie. I literally never have that. People always say, didn't you think the ending sucked? And I'm like, I don't even remember the ending. I w- That's yeah. an overstatement. But like, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I don't, I don't know. know. Can an ending really invalidate 
an hour and 45 that you love like five minutes that you don't like i i don't think i think i've definitely have and i, I can't remember and this just says bothers not ruins but i feel yeah. like people always say like the ending ruined it for me you i feel know? like there's some movies that put a lot of weight on their ending mm-hmm. and if they don't deliver it does kind of make what's seen you know not as uh i don't know pleasurable to think about you know what i mean yeah. but i think ultimately you're right like any movie that's worth its weight you know, even if it does kind of have a lesser ending than the rest of the movie, you would still walk away with, you know, positive feelings about the movie. Yeah. But I think some of these, you know, kind of lesser movies that put a lot of weight on the ending will sometimes, you know, uh, fuck themselves over like that. I mean, it's it's hard. It's really hard to... JT, do you have any? Um, Not off the top of my dome. I feel like it's usually like movie... Because they wind up being like... The gentleman's two and a half, sir, like the three stars in my mind. Like, because it's like, again, like if I'm mostly on board with the movie, I feel like I'm going to think it's pretty good. And you'd have to whiff pretty hard for me to be like, okay, this is the tweak. I mean, in terms of like, I was just scrolling through my letterbox and thinking of recent things. I suppose, like, aside from uh, problems we talked about when we were doing like the big uh like recent movie wrap-up like something like elvis to me i feel like could have been salvaged by like one like ending a whole lot fucking earlier um but like being i don't know i i think there are problems with the like i really like the rise in that movie and then i guess sort of like the last third of like at the top i mean the last two-thirds of um at the top and fall just sort of didn't work for me but again that's not like a movie that like uh i felt strongly about otherwise also kind of food for thought you know we all watch older movies you know i was kind of talking about like Hayes code coming in and a lot of those movies will sometimes like very abrupt and very abrupt ending that basically kind of goes against everything that's just been going on in the movie and you know i think that's kind of conditioned me to be anti ending ruins the movie because like the ending of caught is like absurd yeah oh yeah like that movie i won't spoil it for anyone who has seen it but that has one of the weirdest endings of all time but it's like who cares it's it's literally 30 seconds that are like that was weird but the previous 88 minutes were masterful i got a weird one for you and it doesn't Mm -hmm. i don't know it doesn't even quite fit but uh i don't know if anyone's seen the kurt cameron movie fireproof uh recommended to me yeah i have good good friend jack barchi and like this is not quite the answer but it's like i find like you know that that movie it's a christian movie about like a firefighter who becomes addicted to pornography and it causes a rift in his marriage. And then eventually he stops watching it and everything's good. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? But it is like, I do enjoy watching this guy go through this, this uh, struggle or whatever compared to like, you know, the last aspects of the movie where it's like, all right, well I got to change myself and be Christian now. You know what I mean? But, uh, so I, you I really just prefer him to stay addicted to pornography. I, I just want that him to would keep be jacking. A very interesting movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I had to fix anything, maybe Halloween three, like the the girl that Tom Atkins, the young lady that he's fucking throughout the whole thing, like she becomes one of those Halloween three robot monsters, like brainwashed. Like maybe they get back together at the end. You know, <laughs> like it, it, it's just the cut to black implying that all the kids are brainwashed, but. 
why don't you get a little, you know, post-credit bumper? He sees her on the street again, gives her that Tom Atkins charm, and they're they're back cruising again. <laughs> yeah, that, you know that'd be. Nice. I feel like also the problem is it's like I don't. I've forgotten all the movies I've seen. Yeah. So. Um, the next one, Halloween. Um, as the seasons change, we're all being very brave and watching scary movies. Are there any movies you haven't seen or put off for a long time because they seemed too scary? In short, how is Extended Clip so brave and strong <laughs> from <laughs> Riley? Well, it, well, first of all, uh, my Gmail app prompts me to respond with, I agree with you, and I do. Also, if you remember the original extended clip uh, Halloween season, we we kind of we pivoted and we're like no horror movies. Yeah, that's true. Which because we're just so subversive like that. But because uh, I think at that time my axe to grind with like online film was like Hooptober. Yeah, yeah. Which is who cares? Have fun, watch horror movies. Yeah, we've moved on from. That. But also, I think at least for me, like I, I, I wanted to see like fucked up scary movies at a young age. Like yeah. you know what I mean. So I was I, scared of the concept of horror movies until I was eighteen. So that's my answer. Mm-hmm. I didn't watch any until I was like eighteen. But now I'm open to whatever. What What do you think? Was it just? Did it just take watching them to realize yeah. they're not that scary? I think it's also yeah. because no one ever tried to get me to watch one. If Ooh. I had any pressure, I would have been. I'm like fine I'll, sh- I'll watch halloween whatever yeah but it really wasn't until i was like 18 someone was like um i guess i'll get personal here the Let's phrase was yes i'll be your prom date if you go see evil dead with me tonight Aww. so i saw the <laughs> fetty alvarez evil dead remake as my first horror movie i ever watched <laughs> saw it in theaters and i pretended not to be scared but i was pretty frightened <laughs> Uh, just shaking in your seat yeah (laughs) after that i watched uh the ring by gore verbinski and i never turned back that's kind of a that's a scary movie no the ring's pretty creepy yeah Yeah. jt um yeah i feel like well one that i got that i've really changed tune on was uh when i was like a real young kid i feel like on one of the movie channels i definitely saw a snippet of like a Rob Zombie movie, it pro- was probably House of a Thousand Corpses, or it might have been his Halloween, and just like it's it scared the piss out of me. Not literally, I didn't wet myself, but um, he I, did. I don't know. It, <laughs> I no, saw the shorts; they were damp. No. We have proof. <laughs> um, Picture will be linked in the episode description. They're they're for sale for fifty dollars. JT shorts never peed. <laughs> Um, I don't know. It just like that seemed like so extremely like brutal and gruesome that the the bodily horror aspect of it um, was the most like terrifying thing. But at a certain point, it was just like when I finally turned around to watching those movies, it's just like, oh, it's campy. It's over the top. It's just not realistic. Like, that's the biggest thing was just like at a certain point, it's just like there are plenty of real world things to be afraid of. <laughs> um and just like real yeah, like anxieties the nazis did exactly <laughs> how can you make like... a horror film when we didn't film the holocaust that's john yeah. Godard. that's um, he was real for that <laughs> but yeah you know no. what? i was thinking also i i was also scared of the concept of horror films from both tv advertisements and the uh box art at blockbuster yeah that's what really got me was the, the box horror art is usually scarier than the movie yeah, the It box. Oh my god, it yeah. still freaks me. Yeah, something like like It, especially like the original, like the the image of like the creepy clown is much more scarier than the rest of the movie. Yeah, you know? 
Um, final email. This one comes from Jake. It says, sup, clip. Buddy Love here. Happy to see the clip resurrected. I recently started doing some programming at the theater I work at, so I was wondering if a movie theater reached out to you and asked you to program a double feature for them from one of your existing episodes. Which classic clip double feature would you choose? Be groovy or be movie? That's actually very nice of him. That's a nice sign-off message. I like that. Yeah. Uh, that That is a tough one for what I would want to watch in a theater, you know, like with a packed house. Mm-hmm. I it is it's it's I mean uh, all of them are so great I mean we're, oh we're I mean just, we've done so many great double features over we're so the years. good at the, I mean I feel like I feel like people have hopped on this wave so maybe I wouldn't want to do it anymore because I'm I keep it original but uh Project X and then what is it the discreet charm or, the, oh, or no is the exterminating angel yeah the exterminating angel in Project X that would be a very fun one because that's like you know, a fun art house movie, and then people are turning up during the B movie. Exactly. Like, that is that is the pod, like, in real life. That's how it would be. Um, or Verdu and Freddy Got Fingered is also. Verdu and Freddy Got Fingered is like that. Also, Spanglish grown-ups, too. You know, you cry, you laugh. Oh, hell yeah. What else do you want, you know? <laughs> uh, that, that actually might be my pick to see in a theater wow. because, like, we're so spoiled with all of our favorite cinema getting represented in L.A. all the time, but never, never has a movie theater, a repertory theater program to film uh, by Adam Sandler. Or not never, but it's so rare. Like, you'll get yeah. a Punch Drunk Love a couple times a year, maybe once a year, and then one of the 90s classics every couple years, basically. Like, The Wedding Singer played at the New Bev, like, a few months ago. Yeah. That's, a lot, that's the only Sandman I've seen in the fucking rep scene out here in the last couple of years. I mean, yeah, it's not here, but I remember, I think a couple of years back, I don't know, some New York theater played Jack and Jill in 35 millimeter. God damn. Respect to them. Respect to the New Yorkers. I know I, 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 I say some horrible things about you and trust me, I know what you're up to. I listen to some of these podcasts. <laughs> and, who boy, I'll tell you. Um, not so hot. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't come, you know, get, give it clean. You know what I mean? You're no. Like, you know, I'm fine with the New Yorkers, even though. I listen oh, yeah. to some of these podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen some of these movies. Also, the last one we did on the previous iteration of the pod. I mean, La Ventura Gone Girl. Ooh. That would be awesome. Yeah. JT, do you have one? We're just doing promo for the pod right now. Like, listen to these episodes. I mean, shooting from the hip, I was going to say uh, I am a sex addict uh, and I love it from behind. <laughs> oh, and I just feel like, uh, like, I mean, one, I would like to see some of Kaveh's work uh, in the theater eventually. And then also a pink film. That, like, that would just be, I mean, the other people around me would probably, like, that's bringing out the freaks for sure. Oh, yeah. But uh, I, I don't know. I think that would be a fun one to intro because I'm assuming I, we would be taking on the the noble repertory cinema task of doing a too long intro when Absolutely. you just want to get to the movie. Oh, of course. Of course. Um, so yeah, that's our picks for that. And that's that, you know what that means? That's the end of leg one of the extended clip reunion tour. Uh, we're going to take a little time off now. Uh, I hope you enjoyed these three episodes. I am going to Massachusetts to make a movie, but I'll be back and we'll be talking about movies again for leg two with special guest Ryan Swen, I believe on the first episode of leg two. 
Perfect. Plenty of other people coming. I, I, Josh Lewis, I believe, is on leg two. Eddie's oh, Eddie slid yeah. some some names to me. I was like, that's like not only a good get, but I was like, I probably wouldn't even think to get that guy on. Oh yeah. yeah, we're we're reaching out of the circle. Look, Josh and Ryan, that's easing you back into the old bath. Yeah. That's you're getting in the bath with extended clip and the boys, <laughs> like easing into a warm bath with your boys. So we're at the bath house with Ryan and Josh, right? Of we're course. taking a bath. But then eventually we're getting these big hitters coming in. You're like, are those guys going to jump in the bath with us? No, we're going to talk in the locker room. We'll be normal. <laughs> but these are big guys. So like my we my got... dick might fall out. <laughs> okay, so. okay, okay. <laughs> good night. Put a Chinese menu in his hand. Walking through the streets of Soho in the rain He was looking for a place called Lee Ho Foots Gonna get a big dish of beach home think Nosferatu to this day is one of the coolest vampires ever. Have you ever experienced something that was like super creepy? You know what? A couple of my friends at the comedy store have claimed to have seen ghosts and claimed to have seen things. And I, with many of my friends that work there and comics and stuff, we've gone upstairs to the belly room in the dark and just freaked ourselves out and went, ah! <laughs> ran out of there, stoned out of our mind. Many years ago, 
for $2.99, I bought this album, Suicide by Suicide. Because it said Suicide on the cover and had a lot of blood. But also, the back cover. The two men in the band. One Alan Vega and one Martin Rev. If you look at the picture of Alan Vega, it looks like he's looking into the gates of hell. Like, what is he looking at that is glaring back at him? I had to know. Ian McKay and I got this record back to his stiflingly hot attic bedroom where he lived when we were young. And we put this record on. It's one voice and one synthesizer. We had no idea what we were in for. The single most intense song I've ever heard in my life is, is contained on this record. It's called Frankie Teardrop. Try it. It is easily the most intense song you will ever hear. He might be out there now. Did we hear the bell? Yeah. Oh, we did hear it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Hi, come on in. It's another trick-or-treater for you. What, what youngster doesn't dream of someday ordering around a group of crummy, resentful teenagers? That's why so many kids this year are dressing up as a McDonald's manager. Looks very nice. Are you having a good time? What is are your name? Are we men or are we children? Of what use are all these melodramatic gestures? You say your soul was killed, and that you have been dead all these years. And what of me? Did we not both die here in Marmaris 15 years ago? Are we any the less victims of the war than those whose bodies were torn asunder? Are we not both the living dead? And now you come to me playing at being an avenging angel, childishly thirsting for my blood. We understand each other too well. We know too much of life. We shall play a little game, Venus. A game of death, if you like. But under any circumstances, we shall have to wait until these people are gone, until we are alone. Nosferatu to this day is one of the coolest vampires ever. So when you were saying that you collect the films and you have uh, films, did you do you go back to like the really old ones like Nosferatu? Oh yeah, I love silent like movies, and now they're easier to get because I always loved Lon Chaney, but so many of the films yes. are hard to get. The the Frederick March one is great. It's so perverted. Is it when really? Like with the prostitutes and stuff. Isn't that the one you showed your kids? Like from the third? Oh yeah, know. for sure. <laughs> According to retailers, the most popular Halloween mask this year is O.J. Simpson. And the most popular Halloween greeting is, I'll kill you and that guy who's bringing over your glasses or treats. Well, next Tuesday is Halloween. Or as evil old people know it, Razor Apple Day. 
Thank you very much. I still think Nosferatu to this day is one of the coolest vampires ever.